The sweet sound of sports you love from Sling. The collide of football pads. The squeak of shoes on a basketball court. The crack of the bat on a home run. The slice of skates cutting across the ice. But what about this one? That's the sound of all the sports you love. All at once. Starting at $40 a month. Experience it all live with Sling. Sling. At Bet365, we don't do ordinary. We believe that every sport should be epic. Every basket, every game, every point, every play. From the moments that are legendary to the ones that fly under the radar. Whether it's a three-pointer at the buzzer to tie the game or a player that goes two for two at the foul line. Whatever the sport, whatever the moment. It's never ordinary at Bet365. 21 plus only. Must be present in Virginia. If you or someone you know has a gambling problem and wants help, call 1-800-GAMBLER. Terms and conditions apply. Sunday night edition. First two second round games are in the books. Both of them, I thought, absolutely fascinating affairs. But considering how it came down to the end, I think we need to start with Golden State at Memphis in game one. Sure. I, I thought both games are, are worth plenty of discussion and we can get to both of them. But the one that was closer at the end uh, w- was Warriors Grizzlies. And it was it was a, a wi- kind of a wild game throughout. I mean, you could think about that not only in terms of the swings at the end, but also the turnovers for the Warriors, the Draymond Green ejection, which, of course, we'll discuss, but but everything else. And but I think where I want to start is the initial strategy for each of these teams. We saw Steve Kerr yeah. change his starting lineup and open the game with Gary Payton the second starting and Jordan Poole not starting and Kevon Looney not starting because Steph Curry has now returned. He returned the starting lineup in game five against Denver. And the theory there, presumably, which I, I supported at the time, um, was like, I was thinking about it when that came out. I'm like, oh, that makes some sense is to, to put a better defender on John Morant and Jordan Poole's defensive limitations were relevant in this game. We'll get into where you go from here. But what did you think of that when you heard that it was the case? It was too surprising i think particularly because morant had had a rough series against minnesota the theory was let's not let him get some confidence early and i thought overall morant played pretty well on the offensive end 14 of 31 4 of 11 from three that was the strategy just let him shoot whatever he wanted 10 assists three turnovers 34 points in 38 minutes but it wasn't a performance that was going to completely sink golden state and particularly given how small golden state plays these days they were able to outscore memphis i didn't think well we'll get to that but i think in terms of the overall strategy clearly paying playing gary payton as much as they did was the right move like he was just fantastic one of the key players down the end just made all sorts of hustle plays defensive plays so regardless of whether starting him or not was the right move playing him a lot was the right move and I think that was a, a nice move by and, Steve Kerr. And that ties in with something that was a revelation of sorts to me over the course of this game. I hadn't fully processed the way that I think about these things is that when I was when I conceived of it at first, I'm like, oh, yeah, well, that makes sense. You know, these late game strategies. But and, and I think that like you, Gary Payton played well and that he he served an important role. However, what I think and I'm still working through this. I mean, I'm, I'm talking out loud here. What I realized over the course of this game, particularly when partially 
due to the Draymond Green injection and everything else, the Warriors started with Jordan Poole is that while I think that is correct on a possession by possession defensive basis, I also think that the theory behind starting Poole, Steph Curry and Klay Thompson together is basically being a unit that's really hard to defend, that it puts John Morant in difficulty because there isn't really anybody for him to guard in those actions, that I I fear that when I was thinking it made sense as a starting five that I was losing losing the forest for the trees and that the idea of like going with your five best players going with a lineup that gives them no quarter is in some in in some ways not universally like obviously but that there's a a strong merit to that as well yeah and particularly that's going to be a big theme is the defense of john morant in this game and how they're able to take advantage of it and maybe even should do that more who do you think played better in this game memphis overall and part of that i mean especially in the first half like i think in the first half the warriors were throwing the ball all over the gym draymond had five turnovers more of the unforced than the forced Oof. variety yeah. and memphis wasn't making a ton of wasn't making a ton of those kinds of mistakes i mean they did have this super weird turnover late in the game that we never even got a replay of where I think it was, it was after I believe a clay bucket where they just I, apparently like somebody just missed the inbound pass or something like that we never got a full replay on it but Memphis was hitting shots I so so I would say overall I think Memphis did but that was more of a first half thing than a second half thing to be clear yeah and when Draymond went out it was pretty close even so Golden State definitely has these stretches where they can look really bad particularly in first halves but they kind of hang in it and their playmakers can find a way at the end and that happened in a little bit different of a way in this game it it actually reminded me of game six in Grizzlies Wolves actually where I thought Minnesota had outplayed Memphis in the first three quarters and when Memphis was close I was very concerned for Minnesota because the idea is regression to the mean and everything else if you let a team that's better than you stay in it then you could see you could see it just tilt against you ever so slightly and that's all it sometimes takes well let's save my question actually because i I do have some thoughts on that obviously uh, to till the end when we talk about what's going to happen going forward in this series some of the big themes that i wanted to hit on here jordan Poole and how well he played he really saved the warriors they're down 13 in the second quarter looking like they're about to get run out of the gym Poole started extremely slowly took three pretty bad shots i think he had either a, a wild miss or a turnover i can't remember how it got scored on a drive took a couple of really difficult threes and the Warriors got an offensive rebound that was a big theme Damian Lee who was in the game because of Clay Thompson's foul trouble kicked it out to pool wide open three that got him going and then pool I thought it was his drives in kind of scramble situations that were the most effective and obviously some of the threes that he hit too but it wasn't necessarily like isolation threes it was ball movement moving off the ball he hit one crazy difficult one on his way to five out of ten early in the fourth from the left wing late in the clock but other than that he was getting pretty good looks from three the type you'd be happy with and also his finishing around the rim he did get blocked a couple of times, but he's a different type of finisher than Steph or Clay. Has a little bit better of touch and athleticism getting on top of the rim quickly and pool's agility i thought being able to get to the other side of the rim being able to kind of wriggle in and get something it as you said it's a different finishing package than the other warriors guards so that was massive he really saved them steph was in foul trouble didn't miss that much time throughout the evening but clay definitely did the next thing was that i wanted to hit on was the strategy against morant laying off letting him shoot 
four of 11 from three. Draymond was very egregious about that. They didn't do it as much, I think, in the second. Like Draymond, whatever the strategy is, Draymond will execute it. And that did lead to the Grizz kind of juicing their three-point numbers maybe more than it would have seemed in terms of just getting stuff off a good offense. Like, for example, Bain only got five up where he'd been one of their best players. And Ja was only six of 12 at the rim. The Warriors, I thought, did a pretty good job of defending the basket. And that was a big part of why Memphis only shot 46% from two, even though they went 16 of 40, 40% from downtown. So I think that strategy was decent. You know, like he is really getting like these batting practice plays. And I also, I'm still not sure that would have been my approach because they do have pretty decent help defenders. And they also, like he had really kind of worn down trying to attack the basket. Like that let him get some easy confidence early with the three. And, but, and there were so yeah. little resistance. He's basically just like, yeah. one of them, he walked into it. Another, his first, John Morant's first three was catch and shoot. Like they just kicked it out to him. Yeah. Nobody was really guarding him. That's a little bit different than forcing somebody into a pull-up three with a little, you know, a, a decision there. And it can help a guy get into a rhythm. But as you said, limiting Desmond Bain to five three-point attempts and five two-point attempts when he was their best player in the previous series. And I think that Jaron Jackson shots were a different, that's a different part of this. That wasn't the John Morant theory kind of having spillover effects. That was Jaron being aggressive, getting his shots. I thought that was different, but important. Yeah, and Jaron, 33 points, 10 rebounds, six of them offensive, had one block, but a number of pretty good intimidations. Only four defensive rebounds, though, was a a disappointment for him, as we'll talk about. No Memphian had more than six defensive rebounds. Clark is not an amazing defensive rebounder. Actually, Jaw had nine. Oh, I, oh yeah, I just needed to zoom in more. That was, that looked like a zero on my box score. I apologize. I was like, I thought I remembered him getting some. Uh, In any event, they still didn't do a good enough job uh, on the defensive glass. But Jackson, as far as his three-pointers, most of them were kind of scramble situations, trail situations, offensive rebound, kickout situations. And he'd been struggling to shoot the three. He also only had three fouls, played 31 minutes and did a lot of his damage in the third and fourth quarters as well from downtown had a a nice run there we'll see whether that continues whether that's going to lead to golden state switching up their strategy they even ran like a shooting set for him to shoot a pretty difficult one on a screen along the baseline but jackson also did have four of nine from two i think golden state will live with that he got to the foul line a fair amount though for seven and nine and so he, he was effective attacking you know maybe they need to get a little more locked in on the scouting report but some of it was against like Kaminga where he had a nice hero step against him for a foul so Jackson played really well offensively to be sure defensively I thought less so as we again can kind of talk about later on and I love these game ones that are close too so we'll probably take a lot of time on this other big themes is now when we talk about the officiating I suppose so. And that, of course, begins with the Draymond flagrant two. And this is a very interesting experience for me watching both of these games because I was on baby duty most of the day. Like while she was napping, I would kind of check Twitter every once in a while just to see what was going on. But I watched both of these games in their entirety, plus some targeted clips in addition once kind of the day was over and I knew what happened already. So I was expecting something totally egregious on the Draymond flagrant two I I didn't think it was so terrible. Like, it doesn't surprise me, right? Like, here's what I would say, Danny, and you tell me what... Well, first of all, do you agree with me that it wasn't that bad of a call? I think it was... 
so there are, there are two different theories, and I subscribe to the second, but I understand the first. So one is the additive theory, which is basically that he hit Brandon Clark in the face, and then he grabbed Brandon Clark's jersey. Each of those is separate is a separate infraction that you could argue is worthy of a flagrant point, and so they added those together to make one. I think that is a it is a valid theory of it. However, I prefer to look at things in the totality, and I think that the hit to the face, especially because it was unintentional in the context of a shot block. That was sought. That would be. It could potentially be a flagrant one, but it's like right on the borderline. And then the pull down. It was dangerous, and and I agree with all of that. However, I don't see those two things put together. If I were evaluating it, and I'm going back to like I was trained as a soccer referee, and it's a different field, obviously not nearly as high a level. But it's like I was always taught to kind of look at the whole thing and kind of piece it together. And so to me, the overall infraction was closer to a flagrant one, and that's what I would have called. Man, it is crazy to think that I've been working with Helix Sleep since 2015. And I think that's because my story with them seems to really resonate with listeners. If you've never heard it before, that was kind of the beginning of the direct-to-consumer boom. And there was another very prominent mattress company at that time that was trying to convince you that mattresses were one-size-fits-all. They found the one formula, the one mattress that was going to work for everyone. My then-girlfriend, now-wife, and I ordered that mattress. We ended up having to return it because, hey, guess what? Not everyone is the same. And then she did some more research and found Helix Sleep. We took their sleep quiz and we found a mattress that actually worked for us and our body types. And uh, Helix offers 20 unique mattresses. Everybody sleeps differently. And Helix mattresses are designed for specific sleep positions and field preferences, hot or cold, side sleeper, back sleeper. So take that Helix sleep quiz, find your perfect mattress in under two minutes, and it's shipped straight to your door, free of charge. It's no risk because you really need to sleep on the mattress in your own home. You're like, well, how should I order this if I can't sleep? I'm like, yeah, you're not going to learn anything by going to the mattress store and sleeping on the mattress where do I take my shoes off? Do I leave my shoes on? But then my feet kind of hang off the bed because I don't want to put my shoes on the bed. And is it weird that I'm laying here for more than 30 seconds? You can't tell anything under those circumstances. You might as well just order it, get it sent to your house, get that 100 night trial. They're 10 to 15 year warranty, depending on the model. And there's never been a better time to try a Helix Sleep mattress because they are offering 20% off all mattress orders and two free pillows for our listeners at helixsleep.com slash capspace. Easy to slash capspace. We talk about all the time here on the program. That's helixsleep.com slash capspace. This is their best offer yet. I can attest to that since I've been working with them for nine years. And it won't last long with Helix. Better sleep starts now. Don't forget that slash capspace URL to let them know that you came from us. Yeah, well, I'll start by saying this. Nobody thinks it shouldn't have been a flagrant one, right? Everyone agrees it was at least that, correct? I think that's fair. I'm sure there were some, but if we're talking about like kind of reasonable parties in the mo- in the way modern officiating is, sure. So that to me, if literally everyone agrees it was at least a flagrant one, at least everyone's sane, now you're kind of on the borderline of flagrant we're with, two. We're within the margin for I, I, I think right. that's totally fair. And to me, clearly the intent was to give a hard foul. And when you pull someone down like that, when you hit someone in the head in the with the intent of giving the hard foul, and then he pulled him down by his jersey, like that's a really dangerous play to like and it's a no and it's clearly a non that part of it is non-basketball like well and, and so he claimed oh yeah you know i got my hand caught in his jersey number one <laughs> no i think that's total bullshit uh i, I mean i don't think i've ever I your don't, hand I think I've, accidentally caught in a grasp and pull 
<laughs> yeah, I mean, that's really, well, so number one, I've never seen that before that I can recall someone going up for a, a layup and getting pulled down by their jersey. Like maybe from behind, okay, you kind of grab his jersey just to slow him down, but to like loop in the hook into his jersey and like yank the guy down to the ground. I mean, yeah, he tried to hold him up after that, but that's an extremely dangerous play. And yeah, for, when for you me, make an for me, the, yeah. the pull that that part of it is is a flagrant one all by itself, and that's why I'm sympathetic to the idea that they, if you add in the hit in the face, it's two two flagrant things, and that's like that's I'm sympathetic. I just would have. I, I mean, I'm know. not even sure that the the pull down by the jersey shouldn't be a flagrant too. Like now, he did at least like hold him up, so it's less of a dangerous play than that. You know, I, I think that's probably where all of the anger came from. And yeah, you'd like to not kick a guy out of a game by the way draymond if this is upheld which i expect it to be will then be two more flagrant points away from a suspension because you get you get to four and you're suspended oh, you that's, never, that? that's never been relevant before yeah yeah is well, that something it, he's aware re- of or it, it reminded me yeah i mean people could go back I, I wrote about this at the athletic back in 2016 and i went through all of the flagrant points that draymond got before the fame infamous lebron james one and it was like yeah. there were a, like a lot of that stuff was unnecessary self-inflicted there was one where he basically tackled michael beasley on a on a loose ball in the in that first round series and it's like this was a completely preventable thing draymond green could have not done this in that form and it would it would have been largely the same and it was and so there is a like a lack of sympathy from my perspective even if i think it should have been ruled a flagrant one where it's like you put yourself in that position and i think that there there are a lot of times and there were including some later in this game where fans get aggrieved that officials don't get everything right and i agree that there are some some calls that are more especially when it gets reviewed where a mistake is less defensible than other times however i described this previously as in the margin for error. And I think that's a, a healthy way to evaluate these. So even though I disagreed with the ruling, this was within the realm that is reasonable from what happened. And yeah, when I mean, to be clear, like, I don't recall ever seeing that happen before, right? Like, it's, that's not a normal thing to happen on a basketball court. Like, if someone did it, that it, shit like, to me when I was going up. it that caught like, somebody in the face. It wasn't like, I mean, yeah. people were making comparisons to Chris Paul stuff. Like, this was, this was the entirety of the thing. Like, it wasn't, it wasn't anything. It wasn't like Brandon, like, Brandon Clark fouled Draymond Green or anything else like that. He just grabbed his jersey. Well, and like, you, how much force you need to pull down with to, like, stop a guy like Clark from jumping. I mean, and you know, it, and you know how another, I am about doing doing anything to somebody who's in the air like that, that's yeah. one of my and things. and i think to me anything that you do where if you did that to somebody that you didn't know in a pickup game you would expect them to get up running at you that's probably a good guideline for a flagrant too <laughs> and and i I think that that would happen like if someone did that to me that that's what i would do to them in a pickup game i I think the other part of it that led to people being aggrieved was in the context of a lot of fouls called and i thought most but not all of them were deserved on the warriors guards earlier in the game like basically steph and clay and later on jordan Poole to a lesser extent and i think gary payton was in foul trouble in this early juncture as well and so it was like all of those things, but I thought most of those, not all of them, but most of them were fouls. And so it was the idea of like, and the deck is the deck is stacked. And it's like, yeah, I understand you're a fan that that gets that gets hard. That and and I thought like, it, you know, and, and it coming with the 
borderline or not borderline as, as we you know different things there ejection kind of going on top of that it became somewhat less of a story in the second half a fewer fouls were called and other than the ejection the foul situations weren't as didn't end up affecting the outcome quite as much as we might have anticipated at one point well um, so we got to talk about all the other shit that they fucked up though oh yeah <laughs> right and, and there these was, to me these yeah. to me were, and some of them were way worse yeah, well, first of all, they blew two out-of-bounds calls in the last two minutes of the game. I thought both of them, one of them was kind of tough to see, the Wiggins one that got challenged and overturned. The other one was pretty obviously off of Dylan Brooks, and they're like, ah, eh, you know, whatever. It was well, it's I, a free-throw offensive rebound, let's just make it a jump ball. I think ball. the like, refs autopilot still to calling it a jump ball because that's what they used to do. Or it's like, oh, we can, we can do that, and that's a way out. We can look at it and do it. But that's not what the rule is anymore. And you, it's not a, it's not a cop out to review. Now it's just. What, what do you mean? To, it's not. That's not what the rule is anymore. Oh, oh, you're you're saying that it's just like it doesn't automatically. It get reviewed. doesn't trigger a review. Like, well, it, it wouldn't. I mean, it, it was any out of bounds that was close, regardless of whether they called it a jump ball or not. Yeah, I guess that's true. Triggered the review. Um, but yeah. they would do yeah, it there, that there way so that neither that. side got like an unfair advantage. Let's put it that way. And so, so, rev, so I mean, let's just go through. The, let's just go through the list here because I, I don't want to spend too much more time on the. I agree on on this. Like after Steph Curry blocked. John Morant, which is a great play and was clean, he got the ball and clearly traveled in the backcourt and they didn't call it. Uh, the Steph Curry charge on Dylan Brooks was a horrendous call. That challenge should have been granted. It, and Steph also, is, Kane Fitzgerald's explanation for why that was over, for why that was upheld is completely ludicrous. Yeah, well, oh, well, his his foot was on the ground. But yeah, it doesn't, like, it doesn't matter if you, his foot is there. You can't just trip a guy, right? Like, he's still, his torso is still still moving over first of all secondly Steph is jumping sideways so he's not in his path and to the extent he is in his path his torso is still moving over like yeah guess what you know if you're sliding over I can stick my leg out way over to the side and then move my torso on top of my leg but as long as my leg is there that's what it is it's not where my body is like that was and that would have been Dylan Brooks's fifth and two free throws or a sixth and two free throws for Steph and said it was Steph's fifth although that he didn't end up falling out that could have been huge uh the Kyle Anderson continuation was pretty bad that in I think that was in the first half there's a Kaminga offensive foul on John Morant that was just a total flop, miserable call. There are also just a ton of late calls as well, which I don't mind too much, but there definitely was some of this, oh, you missed it? Okay, I'll give it to you now. And, you know? and also, oh, somebody's on the ground. There must have been a foul somewhere, which was also true at times in the Boston-Milwaukee yeah. game. And, and Kane Fitzgerald is well known by a, a lot of people to be one of the less good prominent referees, shall we say. But in the end, I think, Golden State probably other than the Steph travel was more aggrieved and they still won the game anyway the uh, next so thing we have to yeah go ahead sorry oh you you can lead in the next thing i have one that i want to do kind of big picture yeah. before we well i mean the other thing that was massive was just golden state supposedly the less useful less athletic team they won the hustle game in this one they won it in a couple different facets the warriors played a lower proportion of their possessions in the half court, 76% versus 78 from Memphis. 78% in the half court is very good as well. And then they also had a an offensive rebound rate of 34%. That hasn't been a historic strength of the Warriors. And it, yeah, I mean, I, it would be, I will say they've had moments 
in these small games where especially because they're used to playing small that they have out hustled teams and gotten a lot of key offensive rebounds and they also had a rest before. advantage here which i think was potentially significant that that is particularly given that it was a friday night to sunday pretty early um but i mean gary payton was the one who, who led all of that for golden state i mean his game was so good and the plays that you would make in the passing lanes. I mean, I just want to recount a few of them because they were so imp- impressive. There was one where Ja kind of got past him. He was still following him. Jump stop across the lane. Ja fully extends his arm out away from his body. And Peyton, from behind, blocked his shot. That was just an incredible play. The play where he ran down D'Anthony Melton on a fast break. Uh, and just and knocked, the, the ball, yeah. and knocked the ball out of bounds and just stopped short-circuited a fast break. Yeah, like, he is just always around. Like, he's one of the best help defense guards that we've seen. I mean, and even going back to college, uh, his dunk on Bain, just absolutely Ooh. baptizing him in the first half. Well, and, uh, and something else I thought that was important about Gary Payton's game, this was even more prevalent in the second half, is that... He is a he is a capable play a capable evaluator on the short roll like so there were times where he was getting the ball with an advantage and Gary Payton part of the reason he bounced around early in his career was that he's not a lead guard like he's not a primary initiator it's just not not he doesn't have that kind of game but if it's a four on three and he he can dribble enough and make a decision to pass it down or he can finish he's he's more so like he's not Draymond Green but in some ways his skill set is kind of better because he can do more himself yeah he can he can actually finish I mean he doesn't have the same ability to like flip the angle of the screen and find guys underneath cutting off the ball and stuff like that but yeah he some of his slips to the rim worked really well and sometimes even better because when he was being guarded by John Morant which is another thing we'll get to and then just some like the loose balls that he would get and the tip outs on the defensive glass or the his offensive rebounding at the end of the game both he and Wiggins were just beating the Grizzlies you know sometimes the Grizzlies bigs would be out on the floor because of the switching but those guys were just beating the Grizzlies over and over again at the end what what else you got here for big themes before we kind of talk about the end of this game and then where the series is going from here there were some parallels between Clay Thompson and Dylan Brooks where I thought both of them had rough shooting nights but both of part of that for both of them was just taking some straight up terrible shots and Clay get thinking like doing these like four or five dribble isolations where he doesn't really get any separation and just takes a pull up generally that's not going to be a super good shot dylan yeah, brooks four from mid-range for clay and, and brooks, i thought a typical play was he's posting up morant and like someone came over to kind of shade over a little bit but he never got off the ball with that he never backed down to where he actually forced a real double team and then just took a terrible fit it was it was basically the one time they attacked morant that they didn't get something awesome and then dylan brooks just he, he, you know that's it's something that dylan brooks a part of the experience at this point he only got one shot in the restricted area he took zero free throws and then he was two of 12 on every other shot yeah and there are only i think there are maybe two or three good threes that he got up but uh, some of them were were not great i mean his shooting form is so weird like i mean statistically he actually makes a fair amount he was a very positive player for memphis this year but yeah his shot selection was not amazing um let's talk about the defense of john morant now though that was a big big theme here i mean what what kind of stuff were they doing because he failed in basically every possible way in this game i thought defensively i actually thought for me the thing that i noticed at first was him failing off ball and like there were times where he was on yeah. uh, in, in where he was on jordan pool and he just falls asleep helping without help 
helping or not even doing the first helping in that case and Poole relocates gets an open shot or there's a an, a, a rebound opportunity and then Morant isn't really on anybody and then the, the Warriors get an open shot and Golden State challenges opponents to stay connected to stay engaged in a way that other teams do not but if all you're doing is being a complimentary defender then you if that's your entire job hopefully you can do that job well and when pool really got going in the third it was at the expense of Morant because they started the three guard lineup and Morant had to guard him they didn't start Peyton actually in the second half and then Peyton came in I don't think he ever went out after that and so they started Looney basically in Draymond's place with Wiggins at the four and Ja was just not paying attention getting blown by he might make like one effort or he'd do the matador reach around and then just all right well i'm done here you know not i'm not gonna try and peel over to somebody else or, or anything like that uh wiggins the warriors actually did probably more in the first half attempting to post him up with the likes of porter and wiggins they moran at least fronted the post enough that uh, those passes were a little more difficult and draymond threw a couple of those away he just completely whiffed on a box out on wiggins when he was guarding him so here's the question danny and then the other problem is you know steph curry just runs a pick and roll with his man when you've got him on peyton i guess they're gonna just put two on the ball and then just let peyton get right downhill with all this spacing around him they are terrified to switch him on to steph curry um, at some point they're going to have to i think that's that to yeah. me is the is the way you actually end this well, well but uh, i mean so you don't think stuff is going to cook him i mean if he you will. could just execute if you just say all right you know what i'm going to just make steph curry go right and that was the other thing that they totally failed to execute in this game was steph getting to his left shoving off get, getting those those step backs he hit one over jackson for example but yeah i just don't and i don't trust Ja to execute anything against curry but me i mean I, i'm gonna i would not say don't try it i would try it let's see what happens because you're you're getting just totally destroyed this way right now uh, um yeah i mean they could they could run even more stuff at him but yeah anytime he's guarding someone off the ball anytime by the way jaron switches onto someone off the ball this is uh, was an issue in last year's matchups as well uh there was one play where he switches onto jordan pool on the perimeter and man steve kerr must have just like had the biggest heart on of his coaching career after this one because they instead of pool trying to take jackson they threw it into the post to Otto porter and then pool just moved without the ball beat jackson and clay slipped through and clay got like an easy layup i think that was what put them up 10 in the fourth when steph was out that was just like because that's what steve kerr always wants them to do right not attack the mismatch but just get off the ball and then your rim protector is either out of the way or will do something off the ball to confuse them again ah the sweet sound of sports you love from sling the collide of football pads the squeak of shoes on a basketball court the crack of the bat on a home run the slice of skates cutting across the ice but what about this one that's the sound of all the sports you love, all at once. Starting at $40 a month, experience it all live with Sling. Sling. Welcome back to the land yeah. of the playoffs to DeAnthony Melton. I thought he did a really yeah. good job. He's played well against the Warriors over the years, 14 points in 25 minutes, competed on defense, got three steals and a block. And I thought there was a place for him in the Minnesota series and they, they won it without him, but now he's back. Talk about the end of the game here and, and a few smaller notes uh, as well. The Warriors led 103-93 
then gave up a four-point play with GP the second time that they fouled someone on an inbounds before it got put in. And then I think it was Morant who made a three. At one point, they went four guards with Jaron. This was Tyus Jones and Jot together. I don't really think Tyus Jones and Jot together is going to work. They just need more size and more switchability than those two guys. They only did that for a few minutes. Melton closed a lot of the game rather than Bain which I thought was interesting. And there was talk that Bain might be injured. I I saw that some on Twitter too, and he didn't have a great game. He didn't play that many minutes. I didn't really see much from there, although sometimes when I'm like not watching all of the commercial breaks and the replays and stuff live, you don't see that quite as much. But uh, did you notice anything with Bain? I did. I did not. Um, so yeah, he didn't play well, obviously. I, I don't think he had a good defensive game, either, although he was the guy that Clay beat on the, the final, the game winning three. Um, Golden State doesn't know how to line up for a jump ball. Basically, I, I there was one the one was that earlier when Kavan Looney, yeah. I, I, I was was, it was one of those things I thought it I said it to myself and I'm like do I need to tweet this I'm like he's going to tip this ball to John Moran who's going to get a layup like it seemed abundantly clear as they were lining yeah. up yeah that one was obvious in real time and so what you do because what was happening is basically Memphis was putting one guy at on one side of the circle one guy on the other and then just forcing every Golden State player to be on the other 180 degrees so even when they had the advantage, they're tipping it back in there. The way that you fix that if you're Golden State is, oh, you want to have nobody between us and the rim? Well, now I'm going to just go over here so that Kevon Looney can just tip it over here. Like you make them deal with you on that side, like to protect your own basket. And then as particularly when you're the team with the advantage and then they have to protect against that. And now they're, they can't put as many guys on that side. They just didn't line up properly. That was pretty bad. Uh, Jordan Poole got worked a couple of times. Memphis really just should have gone back to that more than they did uh brooks blew by him once when he just had like really lazy nail help like pool did have like he can have some decent plays sometimes defensively but particularly if he's tired he's just going to be a wallflower uh brooks blew by him for a dunk when he was just kind of like helping without helping at the nail and then jaw got onto him and just blew by him to the left hand for a, a, a really weak and one um jaw's another one of these guys where i think you need to force him right on his initial move at least and not that he's incapable of scoring that way but he just loves finishing with his left hand loves to jump off of his right foot off of two feet and kind of soar to his left hand and so if you make him go right that's a little bit more he can get to his floater there but you're not as concerned about the floater as you are the um him finishing at the rim uh jaron jackson smacked his head on the ground hard did you see that it was a and bad fall like, yeah i did see. and that. then was like stumbling when he got up like that was yeah at first i thought it was his leg but then when i saw it again it looked like it was more upper you know like the like yeah he hit his head yeah he, he just slant i mean he got bridged up in the air going for a block or a defensive rebound or something and then just landed on the back of his head just you know that whiplash into the ground and i was a little concerned seeing him stand up and like try to jog down and like not have his balance so hopefully there won't be anything lingering there in terms of like concussion symptoms sometimes you'll see that arise later uh the last so i think the other thing i would say is just memphis's defense was just bad down the end like they just made a lot of mistakes both during the meat of the game and towards the end i mean to like brandon clark to just lose gary payton for a wide open dunk with two minutes left like not even on a fast break situation and yeah okay steph Curry needs a lot of attention but to just have no idea where your man is like that that was terrible anything else that stood out for you for the i mean we could talk about the last like three four possessions but anything else just generally that stood out to you towards the end of the game and memphis not getting clean rebounds 
I mean, yeah, I mean, did they get I don't think they got a defensive rebound cleanly at any point in the last two minutes of the game. The last one I remember was Wiggins missed a three and I think Ja got one that was like two and a half, two forty five left, something in that range. I think that one yeah. was fine. I think and, it was and a that good kills box them because they can't get in transition either. I mean, that's part of why I think they struggled to score. Uh Nevertheless, they take a 116-114 lead after the out-of-bounds call was overturned. Great challenge by Taylor Jenkins. Went right through the hands of Wiggins and then between his legs on a defensive rebound. And for some reason, they reset the shot clock. I guess they said because Gary Payton actually got the ball, another great hustle play, but then just somehow lost it on his back. So I think they ruled that he had enough possession. I don't, I wouldn't have thought he ever had it, but in any event, they didn't need the shot clock because they just ran a great inbounds play. Clark cut in front of Clay and just a perfect pass from Morant on the baseline for him to tip it in. But that would be the last time that Memphis would score and this next Warriors possession I mean just went on forever because of the offensive rebounds they got I think three offensive rebounds on the play counting the jump ball that happened and Memphis dodged a couple of huge wide open Curry and Thompson threes that could have put him up to but they just didn't get the rebound I mean how long was that possession that possession was forever that trip down the floor was 40 seconds yeah so it really was only one possession and it was all GP and Andrew Wiggins just keeping it alive keeping it alive keeping it alive bouncing around they ended up with the finally after those two wide open misses by the Warriors I mean Wiggins had an a tip right at the rim that he just couldn't put in but then gp kept that alive afterwards so it was clay against brooks brooks gets it but he just like they both missed it at first then he spikes it out of bounds and 39 seconds left no time out there by kerr and i thought jaron again was just i don't really know what the plan was for me like he's guarding wiggins they have steph go backdoor so i guess he's like slightly worried about this half-hearted backdoor cut by steph going out to the corner the plan was for gary payton to then try to screen somebody whoever was there from getting out at the same time as Wiggins was screening Clay's man and Wiggins set a great screen on Bain Clay faked Bain out of his shoes uh, too bad for uh Bain he does the flyby probably more than anyone these days but one of the original practitioners got him and that was you know another huge shot for Clay Thompson's career even after he didn't have a, a great game to put him up 117-116 and then I thought really Memphis managed the ensuing possession extremely poorly you're down one with 37 seconds to go and have two timeouts the two options there to me are you go quickly without a timeout and hope that you get the other team in a scramble situation and Clay had made a three so the Warriors might not entirely back and the other one is call a timeout to kind of do the same thing and instead memphis did neither of those two they grabbed the rebound they did not call a timeout and they moved it up slowly and they didn't get into anything that even was yeah. a chance jaw of, just walked it up basically yeah and they uh, didn't even and, and even yeah. after jaw walked it up they didn't go into a set it took some it took a few beats to get into anything yeah they set a screen with curry's ma'am and Ja had been like talking a lot of shit to Kaminga and Steph Curry at the end of the first half about how they couldn't guard him and so Ja just tried to go left Curry was ready for it and I thought Ja really could have kicked it out like he had Brooks wide open he just kind of headlong barreled into the lane and Curry made a great play with five fouls to block Ja 
Poole recovers it. They kind of don't follow him. They he passed it to Gary Payton. Payton's like, oh fuck. <laughs> but what, what, what's hilarious about this is I'm guessing the Warriors didn't know, and I didn't expect it because I didn't know either that Memphis still had a foul to give. So all of the yeah. panic, and then there were times when the announcers were saying like, oh, well, you could have fouled him, you could have fouled him. They had a foul to give. It doesn't matter who you foul in that circumstance. And yeah. it didn't. No, I mean, Memphis, as an announcer, I've made that mistake before. Oh, of course. How many of course, I'm not blaming. Team, so. I'm not blaming them yeah. for it. But and I'm not blaming the players for being like, oh shit, I don't want to have the ball right now. Um, yeah, I mean, there was plenty of time still, so kind of pressing a little bit, but then... But they weren't yeah, and they, really and then pressing they didn't, this time. Yeah. They did better the second time. But the first time, yeah. it was I, I, it seemed very haphazard to me what Memphis was well, trying and, to do. But yeah, they, Peyton throws it to Curry, and Curry just kind of saw someone. And like, I mean, maybe you could say, oh, he was taking his two steps before you put, to put the ball down. But I, I mean, he walked. It was pretty obvious. Like the last two-minute report's going to say that he traveled. Like they totally blew that one. And then Warriors finally get in the front court. They follow him. They get it into Clay after quite a bit of time has expired. It gets all the way down to 6.7 seconds. Clay did a good job of being strong with the ball while they just continued to try and trap him and force a tie up. And But then Clay, I don't remember Clay ever missing clutch free. He doesn't get to the line very often, but I don't remember him ever missing like real clutch free throws. He wasn't even close on these. He was like really like bouncy, leaning forward. Like seemed like he rushed him like off the back rim, both of them. But then Gary Payton beats Dylan Brooks from the top. And great decision, by the way, by Payton to crash. Your only concern, obviously, is committing an over-the-backbreaker, which the Warriors actually did in a game against the Spurs. Uh, by Yaka, crashing Yaka Pirtle, right? uh Martel? yeah yeah it was looney um but but in any event peyton charges in brooks ends up knocking it out but they call a jump ball which is the wrong call both teams had already used their challenge and memphis won the tip pretty easily call a timeout and then the last play was one that teams will run a lot josh starting in the backcourt peyton is on him and clay thompson was guarding brandon clark he knew exactly what was coming he before clark even handed off he was running over to jaw jaw was going at full speed but clay actually is the second time in the last four minutes or so that just with his length he was able to disrupt that exact shot by jaw just that one-handed extension nash layup but the problem with those is like if you're going too fast it's really hard to control those shout out russell westbrook <laughs> <laughs> Although he never does those one-handed ones. Maybe he started doing it the last But it's the same years, but... general theory of if right. you're going too fast, it's very hard to get the angle and speed right on a layup. Right, and particularly because Clay just, with his length, it bothered him enough and he just only hit the backboard. And Morant said afterwards, like, yeah, you know, that's an easy layup I make all the time. But it, he definitely was rushed and was uncomfortable. And then Wiggins had a nice box out and, and that ended it. So let me hit a couple of smaller notes here and then we can talk about where we're going here. Like Tyus Jones just another example just grizzly's bad defense like he just decides to ice gary payton who's not even a pick and roll ball handler and just let him get right to his left hand which of course like the defender wasn't but that's just like just go under on on gary payton like he's not like a pick and roll ball handler you'll be okay there um i thought john conchar his defense was really good in this game. Like he had a number of plays where he really guys tried him and it didn't work or he had blocks. He's a rugged rebounder as well. Like I wonder if there's a place for him more in the series, but obviously he's going to play for Bane. Maybe you could play him instead of Kyle Anderson. If Kyle Anderson is just like going to become too much of a defensive well, liability. Speaking of Kyle Anderson, one of the in-series adjustments that's going to happen is the Warriors are going to start defending him, respecting him less as a three-point shooter because Kyle Anderson 
Richardson is not really a three point shooter now. And that will be because like there were times that they were like closing out to him. It's like, you don't need to do that. <laughs> you don't need yeah, to. Anderson had like a, a record scratch right as the shot clock was expiring. Uh, you know, Kaminga gave them some athleticism. He's always kind of iffy on the defensive glass. Had a couple of big defensive rebounds, though. Yeah, he he did. And, you know, would they try to get him into the post against John? Like, he did get the charge. I would still maybe look at that a little bit because uh, he has been effective there. I think he's going with him rather than Pializzo was a, a decent choice, particularly because Memphis just doesn't really have guys who are going to, like, outsmart him. Like, they're they're not quite as inexperienced as he is, but they just don't have those type of guys who are just going to, like, bait him into fouls or, or anything like that. Okay, so let's get back to my initial question of who do you think played better in this game? You said Memphis. I disagree with that, but I'm not sure how sustainable things like Memphis outshot them from three. You know, this Jaron six of nine. I do think he's a capable shooter, but he hasn't shot like this all year. The Warriors were 13 to 20 from the foul line. Clay and Steph again missing free throws as well. I thought that Memphis just they're like the Warriors out hustled them I thought that was pretty clear I thought Memphis just made a number of just really bad communication errors defensively and not getting back on defense even after like a you know plays where they're just like hanging around in the front court and then they gave up a dunk to GP um the Warriors were in a lot more foul trouble than Memphis was. I mean, Brooks, I guess, was was the one guy who was impacted there. But Jackson didn't have any foul trouble at all. Like, he probably will get into foul trouble in some games in this series, you would think. So the question becomes, what's more likely to improve here? And and, oh, and also the Warriors had some atrocious turnovers. Most of them by Green, and I would say many of them unforced. And Memphis does force some turnovers. I, I expect both teams to turn it over. But I thought that Memphis's, or the Golden State turnovers were more unforced, which might continue who knows it has before yeah yeah and clay clay was six of 19 steph was eight of 20 pool won't be as good in the future but they don't have the personnel to match up with all those guys like they actually other i don't think they have anyone who actually causes any of these guys as much trouble as aaron gordon did with his length by the end of the denver series and brooks you know has caused trouble for curry in the past curry seemed pretty unperturbed by him i think a big part of that is Steph Curry had a nascent Jordan Poole and no Clay Thompson in some of these high leverage matchups that they've had in earlier times. So can Memphis get better defensively? That to me is one of the biggest questions. Can can they switch more and actually communicate to not give up these dunks, not get attacked with Jaw? You know, are they willing to actually switch with Jaw? Maybe they could even switch double. Like that would be to me, that would be better than just putting two on the ball right away and letting Golden State kind of get in rhythm with the way that they're attacking. So I, I would consider doing that. I think Memphis can do a little more on the offensive glass defensive glass like yeah but neither jaron or clark are great rebounders dylan brooks is a terrible rebounder like job by position is probably their best defensive rebounder. so i don't know how much better they could be but you know can otto porter who was great on the on the glass have this sort of a per- performance again wiggins kind of is in and out from an effort standpoint you know gp won't be but oh by the way speaking of better dream on green only played 17 minutes and was and the defense two, lo- and, the, and the warriors defense looked so much better i would say overall when he was on the floor in terms of execution yeah, yeah and jaw was four of 11 from three can he keep that up like i don't think memphis memphis is not going to shoot 40 percent for three golden state probably if anything with the looks that they had today would be a decent bet to shoot better than this because and you're looking at a total of 32 three-point attempts from curry thompson and pool uh memphis as i mentioned shot 46 percent from two golden state was 56 percent 
100%. Adding Melton to the series, I think, helps. I think that they're, the yeah. Grizzlies are going to need to rely on him. I think Conchar has a, has a part to play. And I don't know what the aim for Xavier Tillman, especially in the starting five, is. I, I've liked his defense for a while, but he just doesn't really have a, a place to be. He doesn't pose a, a real advantage there. And if you're not going to yeah. be like, so I think that's one thing that Memphis could do. They don't have a ton of wing depth unless Zaire Williams is available later on in the series. Um, I haven't heard any like specific diagnosis, yeah. specific uh, return with timing. a sore right knee. Yeah. He played four minutes in game five and, and hasn't been seen since. Sure. So whether he can be back for either Tuesday or Saturday, we'll have to see. And when you use, you know, probably be reluctant to use Jones and Morant together. I don't necessarily think more Clark, but maybe slightly different. Maybe you put him in, put him in the starting lineup because you don't have to worry about like eating up fouls on a big guy with Carl Anthony Towns or Joel Embiid. There isn't anybody on the Warriors who does that. So you can kind of conceive of your lineups a little bit differently. Yeah, I think if this game gets played a bunch of times, Golden State to me wins more than half the time. And let's, of course, keep in mind that Memphis is at home here too. And, you know, I think that in terms of just like, oh, different player usage or something like that, like I don't really think there's that much different that's going to change there. Like I, I didn't think that, you know, like Bain can play better. I mean, that, that's the big one, but obviously Jackson is, I don't see him having 33 points every game in this series either. Now, the Grizz may have some of these games where they just totally overwhelm Golden State. They do more on the fast break. They do more in terms of points off turnovers. They really win those categories. But I'm just not sure that their defensive communication with these young guys that they can quite get there with this Clark Jackson front court, or if they're going to go with four guards, I mean, maybe you're going to call Brooks the four, and then maybe you go Melton or Conchar rather than Jones. I don't see Ja getting better defensively. So maybe the Grizz defensive communication can get better and they'll just have more help defense and they can deal with the Warriors spacing better and, you know, force them to get a bunch of twos blocked and stuff like that. But the Grizz had six block shots, so did the Warriors. And while you would expect, hey, the Grizz are going to come out, I would probably favor the Grizz in game two just because of like the desperation yo-yo effect. But there's an additional part of that, which is that Draymond Green didn't play and he's going to come out really pissed off too. And so Golden State's going to have even more confidence that like, hey, we can play even better in this game. So th- there's that's an additional dynamic. Also, game two is now, like, I mean, it's, it's must win for Memphis because... I, right, right, yeah. So there, there's that additional pressure. I would say that I, I still feel confident in my Warriors in six. Like John Morant playing yeah. better makes me feel like, and and Jaron had this big game. Whether that will continue or not, I mean, he had he had a couple of big ones and a couple of, of of poor shooting nights against Minnesota. Also, was in foul trouble more in that one than he will be against Golden State. But yeah, so I think Memphis can and will win games in this series. I don't know that they will win four out of six. I'm not foreclosing possibility, but it's it, no. it will be it will be difficult. Yeah, I, I think, and obviously, if they go down 0-2 losing the first two at home they are not in very good position shall we say any other like adjustments we've been talking about this game for a while but i I thought it was absolutely fascinating and uh, uh, game ones i probably actually like to talk about more than game seven sometimes just because you're finding out so much about the series but any other kind of adjustments that you'd like to see I think that's about it. Yeah, I think a lot of it just for both of these teams is just better scouting report defense, better understanding of what you want to do against guys in isolation. Like to me, I'm directing the ball against Steph in every pick and roll and making him go right. He's a better passer maybe with his right hand, but you just don't want him to get the possibility of going to his left and either turning the corner on you or just like doing that little forearm shove off and then stepping back. Because that's kind of one of his few moves in isolation at this point. Like he's not doing the same type 
the stuff that he was doing five six years ago with that respect still obviously fantastic and I probably would put if I have to put John Morant on one of Clay Thompson Jordan Poole or Seth Curry I would put it on Clay Thompson same and all right you want to post up with Clay Thompson on Ja go ahead you know Clay might hit some of those but even if he makes 50 percent you're probably doing better frankly and Clay doesn't isn't the same level of off-ball mover that's just going to make Ja look stupid like yeah you can set a screen for Clay and he'll come off a screen but he's not going to just ad-lib the way Poole or Steph are and and he also just if if he gets past Ja, he's nowhere near the level of playmaker and passer that those guys are either. And you, know, you might try him out on Wiggins some too, although then you're, you've got some problems on the offensive glass and, and effort-wise. I think I would still start the same lineup if I were Golden State. Um, oh, I, one thing we didn't mention is that Kerr actually went with uh, essentially Gary Payton the second at center. Down for a stretch, end. yeah. And, and that was, uh, and really for the meat of the game, and that worked out great. Like they actually played bigger. Like, like Gary Payton is... He's almost like a center in some ways with some of the help defense plays that he can make and just the overall athleticism. But it, it reminded me of it was more in some ways meant as a dig on Andrew Wiggins, but it was this idea. I when I wrote a piece about Peyton and the early bird rights for the athletic early in the year, and I brought up this idea that he could be a part of their closing five, and that's the way that he could really firm up his value. And like my thought was to be that he replaced Wiggins. And this one he didn't, but that's partially because Draymond Green was unavailable. But I thought yeah. these are really but, nice but he stuff. plays bigger than like Otto Porter for right? sure I mean though Porter again I thought was really Had wonderful some good on the glass today yeah. but you know he's his offense has kind of fallen apart since ah the sweet sound of sports you love from sling the collide of football pads the squeak of shoes on a basketball court the crack of the bat on a home run the slice of skates cutting across the ice but what about this one that's the sound of all the sports you love, all at once. Starting at $40 a month. Experience it all live with Sling. Sling. So all right, yeah, we'll, we can, we'll see the next game here. Um, I, I, and, so I, I have a place to start here. Please. When you and I, at the end of our series preview for this one, I asked the question, which of us panics about our pick first? And I'm pretty sure the answer was me because it was in the second quarter when there was this stretch when Milwaukee, I think it was something like a 10-0 run. And it wasn't so much Milwaukee getting a 10-0 run on Boston. Boston had one of their weaker lineups on the floor for some of that stretch. It was the reminder of how disruptive and effective Milwaukee's defense can be at their best. And I I talked about earlier in the Warriors section about losing the forest for the trees. And something I wish I had appreciated more when we were previewing this series was I, I focused a lot on the limitations of Grayson Allen and Bobby Portis. But what I didn't fully get, and the Celtics will be better in these things in games two through whatever than they were in this one, is okay, you get Grayson Allen in a mismatch. What does that turn into? It might turn into an open three some of the time. It might turn into that. But it's not going to turn into a good shot around the basket because the Bucks don't give those up anyway. And I think that was something that I didn't fully appreciate is that having the level of rim protection that Milwaukee has mitigates some of the damage of those defenders because they don't compromise the entire scheme. Yeah, I, let's 
get to it first here of just the statistical damage for Boston in this game offensively. Boston finished with the second fewest made two point baskets in NBA playoff history, only behind with 10. And a couple of those were once the game had resolved. 10 is one more than the Houston Rockets in May of 2017. They shot one of yeah, 15. That was against the Spurs, by the way, in that game six Harden two of 11 debacle where they lost with at home to the Spurs without Kawhi. Why? Yes. And they also, um, ESPN Stats and Info had this. The Celtics were one of 15 on two-point shots contested by Giannis or Brook Lopez. They were 0 of 12 on two-pointers away from the restricted area. They had an offensive rating of 90 for cleaning the glass. <laughs> Is that enough, Carnage? Yeah, it's not good. The final score was 101-89. Yeah. And, oh, and by the way, they shot 18 of 50 on threes. So they had a 90 offensive rating or 89 90 offensive rating while not having an anomalously bad three-point shooting night yeah so the shot chart just a little here the celtics did not hit a shot a a two outside of the rim the rim oh for 12 meanwhile milwaukee was actually eight of 12 on twos outside of the paint one of those was kind of a three by drew holiday but he just had his toe on the line but you know drew was able to get to a couple of mid-rangers Giannis hit a couple of jumpers bobby portis had a couple like just just enough and even a decent shot for mid-range is like gold in this series like this series is gonna be an absolute bloodbath like both these teams shot pretty well from three in this game and they still couldn't score now they'll find out some ways to like boston won't have like the worst two-point shooting game in NBA playoff history but here's my kind of hot take on this both after watching and after looking at a bunch of stats other than the bucks being 8 to 12 for mid-range they were almost as bad offensively as boston you know they just took more mid-rangers and boston took more threes and well Milwaukee, so I, I think there's yeah. an important distinction here are okay. you talking about just first shot half court offense because in transition there was a well yeah well so i'm just talking about the overall shot chart and i'm actually i was i was gonna get there um but the overall shot chart like milwaukee was seven to 24 on floaters Boston was 0 for 9, 8 of 12 on those long mid-rangers, and Milwaukee was 10 to 20 at the rim, and Boston was 10 to 22. Now, the Bucks and they both shot, they shot 20 and 21 free throws, respectively. The Bucks did beat them on the offensive glass and got, got some nice tip-ins, but the biggest difference in this game was that the Boston Celtics had maybe the worst transition offense game I've ever seen in my entire life, and it's not I'm not talking about like not running. I'm talking about getting into transition and just it being a complete disaster. Nate, I don't know if you saw this, but Quentin Glass, you know, does these stats. Boston's yeah. offensive rating off of a steal. They had eight steals in this game. Their offensive rating off steals was zero. <laughs> It was incredible how they would find ways. And conversely, Milwaukee was awesome. Like they had a 233 offensive rating off of their steals. But, and part of that, and so I actually, I saw that and I went on Synergy and it's not a perfect matchup between cleaning the glass and Synergy. Synergy is hand track. Cleaning the glass is just based on just where it was in the shot clock. But, and Synergy will even do transition off of make sometimes as well. But I watched all of those and I had a few thoughts Number one was that Milwaukee did a great job of getting back. There were just a lot of plays where Giannis and Lopez sprinted back and just made great plays at the rim. 
Boston had some pathetic turnovers though in transition and obviously just like couldn't make a bunch of their threes as well missed a bunch of easy layups their passing was terrible it was just so bad and Milwaukee obviously they have Giannis you'd expect them to be a little more efficient in transition but even like it's not like he dominated and I mean Boston's defense was amazing in this game it was so good Robert Williams completely discombobulated Giannis at the rim Giannis was plus 23 so now I'm not saying that Giannis had a bad game he and I thought he had a, I thought Giannis had a very nice passing game we'll talk about yes that later. yeah yeah do you want to elaborate on that a little bit like, like what types of passes was he making that were impressive Jared Dubin had one that it blew my mind and then when I watched the replay it blew me more it was a like basically a driving hook pass and Jared invoked LeBron and it is a pass that LeBron makes more than almost anybody he had kickouts to the corner he had uh I think he had an over the head pass as well and just but it, it, it isn't the spectacular I mean the spectacular passes are fun it was the making the right decision not getting pressured not turning the ball over that much just keeping things moving finding players getting open looks using that attention using those head turns it's not the same as what some you know like what the warriors do like when you were talking about the distracted by steph curry but he was finding open guys it was fantastic there's a specific pass that for years i've said Giannis needs to find and it's a difficult one because particularly because he's driving from up top a lot driving from the wing i'll talk a little bit more about just kind of how the bucks and versus the celtics ran their offense but the pass is to throw the ball back up to the top of the key after you drive because a lot of teams will just he's going to spin they just want to have someone help from the nail up there and so yeah that pass you talked about that hook pass back up to the top i think it was Connaughton that he set up for a three on that one he just set up a ton of threes with just great as you mentioned i wouldn't call them basic passes like he's on the move it's just tough but he just knows if i drive now and there are a lot of people here that pass at the top of the key is always going to be open and that made up for him being 9 of 25 from the field 6 of 11 from the foul line but he had the 12 assists and he also had five turnovers i mean it was he had 24 points on 30 shooting possessions I mean, you rarely see that level of struggle from Giannis and he missed so many layups like what did he shoot in the restricted area it was I would guess in the half court in the restricted area he probably shot like you know 25 percent around the rim or something like that like Williams was just coming out of nowhere and just because Horford was on him and Williams would come over and just cause him to rush it and he was Williams was great defensively so overall in the game Giannis four of nine in the restricted area three of nine from Florida range yeah, and some of those, you know, what's what's a floater, and particularly with him, given how far he takes off. But he hit a you know a few mid rangers, and Drew hit a few mid rangers. You know, I, I thought he just had a really nice controlled game. He was eight out of twenty, but hey, in this game, eight out of twenty is pretty good. <laughs> Got to the line for for six of six. Brooke Lopez. I mean, the fact that Brooke Lopez is looking just like the same guy he's always been after that back surgery and that's just so massive like they would just be as particularly with Middleton out there but I think even with Middleton they would be in big trouble defensively without him having to go to like Serge Ibaka or more Giannis at center but let me see what else we got from this one oh yeah so the way that the offense went the Bucks had largely isos and post-ups in half-court situations a lot of Giannis and as we mentioned Giannis was pretty inefficient except for his passing game and his transition game uh boston meanwhile had 36 pick and rolls to 21 for milwaukee as trashed by synergy milwaukee posted up 18 times and boston posted up once <laughs> and milwaukee also had 28 isolations and boston had two isolations in the entire game very interesting some of those were pass out some of them were, were shots that were taken 
What do you make of that? I think they're getting to offense in in somewhat different ways. Like there was uh, Nikai Duncan had this, and I thought it was a really a good a good clip and summary of it was that there was a play where Giannis was posting up, and what Milwaukee did was they put Grayson Allen as the guy one pass away, which also meant that Marcus Smart yeah. in that situation was one pass away. Marcus he, Smart he overhelped so much on some of those plays. He they gave up like help. three threes off exactly. of him, overhelping off of Allen. That was and, that was and bad. so it's generating advantage, generating extra attention and getting an open shot how you how you work to that point can be different but also boston has better pick and roll operators than milwaukee does so i don't i don't particularly i it mat, uh, it affects how you get into things but it also like especially because milwaukee is playing in the 28 minutes when brooke lopez is on the floor but not all of those of course were with Giannis. is that's the, that's why you play multiple rim protectors both of these teams try to do that when they can because then you can't just occupy the only player and then drive in with no recourse there's somebody else who's going to make that shot a living hell yeah i think so and for boston offensively jason tatum four of nine for three Jalen brown three of nine for three they combined to go three out of 13 from two and a lot of those were at the rim and they also combined for 10 turnovers seven of them by brown and brown has this hamstring issue he's playing and he didn't look particularly explosive he did have like one big tip dunk but that was a, I think that was his only two point field goal was that tip dunk he didn't have one uh, that he created by himself or had set up for him from two only also only got to the foul line for one out of two did brown yeah I thought this was a brutal Jalen Brown offensive game and, and it was a brutal Marcus Smart offensive game too it was also a brutal Marcus Smart physical game yeah you the, got that stinger stinger yeah, a quad the, contusion knee. and then yeah. it was it was another thing if memory serves like oof. so what can Boston do about this they were very aggressive taking the three early they got up 53s oh that's playing right into the bucks hands i mean making 36 percent of 53 pointers is good offense particularly in the half court where they made most of their their threes that they made were in the half court because they couldn't do anything in transition the entire game boston also got to the line as many times as milwaukee did and yeah. generally that's a part of the math problem that wasn't i mean both teams also were protecting the rim very aggressively so you, you could argue that it was kind of a mix a mix of both of those things and executed yeah, and milwaukee barely got more offensive rebounds too they just had some more second chance points but they're both both teams are around 20 percent offensive rebounds yeah we brought up how inefficient boston was on on threes but yeah they um i think part of it was that boston wasn't they weren't converting as many of their offensive rebounds even into shots there was just some weird stuff like that but it was it wasn't as egregious as the zero offensive rating up steals which is just appalling so Boston, as I was watching the game, I was like, why is, J you know, Jason Tatum didn't do much in the first. I'm like, why, why are they not running pick and roll with Jason Tatum and just letting him shoot a three? And in the third quarter, they came out and they did, they just spammed the hell out of that. And I thought it looked pretty good at times. Like they actually were getting Brooke Lopez up further on the floor now of course Giannis is still back there in theory but you actually were getting two on the ball they were able to Tatum actually split it a couple of times and then he just went right into Giannis and got blocked instead of throwing it wide open to the guy in the corner but that's something that they could look at a little bit more setting the screen with Lopez's man I might also consider like Horford did a great job on Giannis he probably needs to guard Giannis but I might consider starting the game small and then going big when they bring in Bobby Portis oh Bobby Portis started the game obviously but when it's just Giannis and Portis or Giannis and Lopez when they only have one of the rim protectors on the floor that's when you go big and you use Robert Williams most of the time there now I realize that Williams is a big part of their strategy to stop Giannis 
but I think they can still defend these bucks pretty well and they just need to find a way to get some more offense like Derek White you know people were killing him in the first half he did actually hit two of his three three-pointers like that's good that he he's going to need so, to make so, those so shots. Nate, is your theory that you replace Robert Williams with Grant Williams or Derek White what's the what's yeah the- yeah somebody who can shoot because as long as Robert Williams is hanging out around the basket, like they weren't able to take advantage of him, like getting alley-oops and Horford was very aggressive. I think he was three of six from three in the first half. And that's good. I think he should be, but to really be able to play five out again, and they had some Horford Williams lineups, or Grant Williams lineups out there, of course, at times. But I think to do that against the Lopez Giannis group and say, Hey, you know, all right, fine. We're going to just bomb from three even more. And particularly do a lot of Jason Tatum pick and roll during that period with Lopez's man or even Bobby Portis's man and then let Tatum just go one-on-one against Bobby Portis they might put two on the ball there but then you can get downhill and then hopefully get like corner threes out of that um the other thing I'd be doing obviously is going at Grayson Allen they didn't do that at all with Jason Tatum right like like and hey a mid-ranger is okay right like and I mean, even if it's Jason Tatum against Wes Matthews, right? Like Drew, you know, that's that's a little bit tougher. But there's this thing you can do called a screen that that can help you there against a small player. Uh, now, maybe part of the problem is like, who's who are you going to pick and pop with Jalen Brown or uh, whoever Grayson Allen is guarding? Another adjustment could be like, hey, let's just leave someone other than Grayson Allen as well for these double teams. Like, that's not that hard to do. But they need to attack uh, Allen, of course. Just not fucking up constantly in transition. Like, I really actually don't think that the Celtics played that much worse than the Bucks. It just seemed like they were getting so strangled. But they really did the same to Milwaukee. And Milwaukee just had, like, a little bit of... They're willing to take a few more mid-rangers. They hit them at a probably unsustainable rate for a group like this without Chris Middleton. So, and Jalen Brown posting up, maybe we could get some of that. Right. And, you know, I think they just don't want to try that because they're like, Hey, there's just always going to be help at the rim, but that's okay. Like go activate that help because the, the way the bucks are playing right now, it's the same thing. It's always been, we're going to help so much one pass away at the nail. And Hey, we're going to throw it to Marcus smart on the left wing. Go ahead and take it. Marcus Jalen Brown, go ahead and take it on the, the right wing they were able to play Pritchard. I don't think he was like a huge liability for them. So maybe he, I don't think he needs to play more necessarily, but white hit his shots. And I think they could also just try to play through Tatum a little bit more and just accept that it's going to be ugly and you just got to kind of grind out points and it's not going to be as pretty as it was. Like a lot of people were like, oh, you know, the Celtics, they look so station to station. They didn't get ball movement. They had 18 turnovers. And I, I, to me, trying to do all that movement stuff didn't work as well against these guys. I think trying to be more intentional about finding a matchup and obviously going after Portis as well anytime he's one of the two bigs in the games because they're going to put two on the ball and pick and roll and then you can get downhill and get some pace out of that in in the half court as well any other like big observations that you had on this one or adjustments or anything like that i am definitely interested in your sub pattern idea for for boston and i did not expect that javon carter and grace Allen were going to be able to kind of fit into this series and i thought that you know javon carter's not a horrendous shooter but i thought that the the celtics did I think you can try to gum things up a little bit more aggressively to just and if he's he'll hit some but trying trying some of that stuff just trying to accentuate and trying to narrow maybe try to narrow Budenholzer's rotation a little bit I mean this one partially because it got a little bit out of hand late but like you know Drew at 36 Giannis at 38 like they can live with that yeah Boston actually led by seven and then gave up a 10-0 run at the end of the first with a Tice and Peyton Pritchard both out there lineup 
Tice played four minutes. They just really couldn't score with that group. I think he played all of his minutes in the first half, and it was only negative three. It wasn't too much of a disaster. Yeah. But is that the lineup that Bob Ligaris had? The stat that they had a point four. They had I a, think I think it was. They yeah, had an they offensive had rating. They have an it. offensive rating of forty. I'm guessing that's that was probably it. Yeah. So yeah, really, only three guys played off the bench: Carter, Connaughton, and Grayson Allen for the Bucks. You know, Bobby Portis just had a nice game with a few mid-rangers and post-ups here and there. Just someone who can give you some random offense. Didn't get taken advantage of hardly at all other than a, on a couple of plays. But I think trying to run more through Tatum is good. Like if you can, like the Bucks fear Jason Tatum's three ball up top. He hit a couple and then Brooke Lopez was being pretty aggressive. I think he, some off-ball screening stuff for Tatum as well it could be useful. Um, you know, even just some screening to get Jason Tatum a mid-ranger. Now, Jalen Brown just isn't any good this series because of this hamstring or you know, i mean because you need all your athleticism to finish against these bucks then that's obviously going to be a massive problem for the celtics as well and and for milwaukee i'm not really sure what else you can be doing to score that well like i do think that trying to get some mid-rangers against this group is fine like if i were Giannis, i think i'd be trying to take more off the dribble just face up jumpers rather than just flying in he could also probably finish better i mean robert williams wasn't blocking all these i think just his robert williams in his head a little bit and maybe he'll just get a little bit more used to that I think the Bucks did a decent job of this, but I'd like there. You can also both teams can do a little bit more driving for the primary purpose of activating the help and just kind of getting the yeah. getting the blender going. And it it because sometimes it's like, well, I drove. I, I might have an opportunity around the basket. It's like, yeah, but those opportunities aren't that good in this series because of the level of rim protection. Yeah, I'm just very interested to see what Boston's strategy is because they just don't have shooters who are good enough to in theory punish all this nail help from milwaukee right now now the other thing you can do is just put jason tatum on the wing and have somebody else try to drive marcus smart try to drive and we'll see whether they don't help off of tatum or not like that that could be an interesting strategy as well but yeah this is where maybe boston not having a really good point guard like kemba walker not that kemba walker's any good anymore but kemba walker was the guy who was probably hardest for milwaukee's old school your father's bucks defense which they're back to now since these playoffs started to match up with because of his ability to shoot the three off the dribble and then blaze by you when you would get out there boston doesn't really have someone who is just going to be able to blow by you and get to the rim really quickly it's more deliberate with these guys and they're not tatum has improved as a passer but he's got to get better like you can't be missing these shooters in the corners coming downhill trying to get a layup over Giannis instead let me see if i got anything else here oh the bucks really pressured up full court a ton and i really like that strategy just bleed a little bit more off the shot clock boston doesn't have anyone who's just gonna blow by you in transition smart you know particularly if it's i mean basically whoever it is like he's not you're not worried oh marcus smart's gonna blow by us and then we're he's gonna score on us john moran style at the rim so boston started setting a bunch of screens in the backcourt when it was tatum bringing the ball up now you're just asking maybe you're just starting to ask too much for jason tatum to be handling the ball this much but that was a, a pretty good approach i i thought just to tire him out a, a little bit with some of these interchangeable guys like carter or even grayson allen or Connaughton. i thought the celtics 
maybe just because they were so terrible running in the first half they really lost the impetus to push the ball and i think maybe part of that might have been smart's injuries as well there's a lot of times when they would get a stop right at the start of the third and just walk the ball up i'd like to see some spain pick and roll type of plays for tatum see how they defend that it's a good idea that's about it i i don't think that i think a lot of people are probably like i think this is a disaster for the celtics and yeah if they get just this jalen brown they're gonna be in trouble but I think they'll I think they're gonna play better I think they can win game two and that this is just gonna be a, a total crazy dog fight of a series and a rock fight and hopefully Boston will look at the film and figure out some things to do, get slightly better shots and but hey if Boston just finishes a little bit better in transition this is a game now see what happens when we get to Milwaukee as well this game was in Boston let's not forget okay let's talk a little bit here about these other series I'm so depressed about the East. Let's start in the West. Suns Mavericks excited that Luca is back. We'll see if a couple days off gets him closer to 100%. And I think defending Luka Doncic is the place that we want to start here. As Phoenix, this is a personnel question, but it is also a scheme question for Monty Williams. Yeah, and of course, one of the big things is going to be the Phoenix Suns took DeAndre Ayton number one in 2018 over Luka. And despite the fact that even still, I would imagine they regret that decision. They have basically defended and played the worst against Don, or the best against Doncic of anyone. Doncic has played the worst against them. That starts with Mikhail Bridges. And I mean, I think their initial default is going to be, all right, Mikhail Bridges, you just get over a screen. We're going to play conventional pick and roll defense. And we're going to have DeAndre Ayton playing a drop particularly when Dwight Powell is in the game and so I think the counter that will come pretty quickly to that from Jason Kidd if Doncic can't necessarily get going against Bridges which he has struggled with some and I think Bridges to me because of his length can bother Doncic and it's it's analogous to what we years ago about how like because Luca there are parallels between Luca and Harden where length is better on a player like that because even if they get into your body you can still contest the shot whereas if it's somebody who's a little bit burlier then you're not creating the same advantage yeah and Luca he is very deliberate and he's always comfortable and he's very good at using his body to protect the ball but Mikhail Bridges can make you uncomfortable with his ability to continue to compete rear view contest poke the ball away get skinny over screens you got to re-screen now it's just a little more tiring if however bridges isn't on him i mean to me if i'm the dallas mavericks pretty much every single possession i can even if dwight powell is in the game i'm having someone set the screen to see if you can just get a switch of someone else onto Luca, and then if Powell's in you run the pick and roll or I think more likely Jason Kidd is going to default to five out basketball again with Kleba I think you know Kleba guarding DeAndre Ayton okay are we switching now that that's interesting right like this is they don't have Draymond Green Kleba is very good but he doesn't quite have that level of help instincts Chris Paul is a great, great passer. The DeAndre Ayton or JaVale McGee ducking in can be really effective. And maybe they'll just, they'll challenge Kleba probably to hit shots initially. I think they're going to try, they'll, Phoenix will try not to switch against that group. Maybe they'll late switch. Maybe they'll switch double. Or if late double. get stuck on him. Um, they've got a, just slightly more perimeter athleticism than the Jazz to kind of fly around a little bit. And Ayton can get back and protect the rim. All that's going to be absolutely fascinating. But I, I think... And I'm not sure that kid can downsize even more, particularly when Aiton is in the game, to like Dorian Finney-Smith at center and switch everything, right? Per- particularly because the Suns have multiple players that can create problems for you, that can that can attack your defensive shortcomings. And Dallas, 
Dallas, it's a familiar refrain from teams that try to play really small. You need very special players to be able to provide the supplemental rim protection and communication when you go small. And DFS can do that at times. I think that's asking a lot of Reggie Bullock and a lot of these. Luca is actually a a significant challenge in those sets. And I think Phoenix, Phoenix puts pressure, even if Utah had one of the best offense, had the best offense in the league during the regular seasons here with the level of operation that Chris Paul and Devin Booker have, they will stress those small lineups in a way that Utah did not. Yeah, on on the defensive end, and, exactly. And we can talk a little bit more about that in a second, but I think you know, I don't think Phoenix is going to stop these guys. I think they can do. They're situated maybe better than any team in the NBA, other than possibly Boston. And even Boston couldn't deal with Luca in a five out. Remember that regular season game that uh, Luca basically won them. One of the few games that Boston lost during their big run. And I do think that the best that Dallas is going to do is going at Devin Booker, going at CP, and one of Booker and maybe you wanted your best group is you take Bullock off the floor, you go with the three playmakers, Finney Smith and Kleba. And now you're forcing Chris Paul and Devin Booker to guard someone. And maybe you even would, like, like I would even try with both Booker and CP say, all right, we're going to space you out and we're going to try the, the Dallas approach and see if that works. You know, all right, Mikhail Bridges, you're on Luca. Go stand over here every once in a while at the end of the game. And let's see if Jalen Brunson can kind of work into the lane against CP or, you know, I, I think now maybe just because of Chris Paul's reputation, they won't do that. But I do think if you get Paul in space, he can be beaten at this point in his career. He's tough, but he doesn't have length and he's not really that quick laterally anymore. That's something I would look very seriously at. And it, Devin Booker coming back off the hamstring. I mean, that's the other thing too. We'll talk about that more on Phoenix's offensive end. And the other thing too, I think is kid, they only have one center. There's one player they put on the floor where it's not five out unless we're gonna, they're going to play Josh Green a lot, which hopefully they can get away with not doing that too much now that Luca's back. That's a much bigger problem in this in this series. Playing Josh Green, you mean? I think so, yeah. Yeah, maybe so. Uh, and they can hide their center on him, obviously. I would try to pair up all of Luca's minutes with JaVale McGee to the extent that I can or Bismack Biombo rather than Ayton just because JaVale is not a good pick and roll defender and because yeah, and, and, and because yeah. Dallas and I think this is probably more a Luca thing than a Jason Kidd thing Luca seems so much more comfortable running high pick and roll with a center rather than a small I wanted to see them run more small small pick and rolls in the Jazz series I'd like to see them do it more often in this series to try to cultivate a mismatch but if that's your base if that's what you want to use your base you want the most favorable matchup for that base in fact the more i think about it i would start kleba and then match up all powell's minutes and hopefully luca's minutes with whoever the backup center is and just try to get minutes out of powell that way then maybe even nate bridges i assume they're gonna play bridges just 44 minutes a game so he'll be on the floor whenever luca is if they don't start that way they'll get there pretty quickly i would imagine They'll probably dust off Torrey Craig, give him a shot again this time. I don't think he's going to succeed. But I could even see them eventually, which we saw them do in last year's playoffs, less so this year. They saw them do it against the Warriors when JaVale failed earlier this year to just go, you know, Cam Johnson at center or Torrey Craig at center and do more switching defensively. But that's a win, I think, if you can get JaVale off the floor because he's pretty good offensively. And now you Mm -hmm. can, you know, I kind of as particularly, I kind of like if this devolves into a switching isolation fest, 
to me, that's that's the best kind of ball for Dallas. They played that way all last series. They got guys who can do that. Eaton, they're going to try and play him, obviously, 40 minutes a game. But whenever he's not out there, I think it's really advantage Dallas in either scenario. So I think that's what I try to do. And I, I'm going to go after CP, maybe not even necessarily with Luca. I want to go after him with one of those quicker guards and make him because CP will just, you know, battle in the post and he'll flop and, you know, it'll just devolve into this test of strength. And then maybe they can double team and stuff and the shot clock will bleed off. Just go and attack him. And another thing, Dallas has got to be really good in transition. They did a really nice job of attacking Utah in transition for early threes. And while Phoenix's defense has a lot of strengths, they were 19th in the league at opponent percentage of plays in the half court in the regular season, whereas Dallas was fourth in that in that measure. Yeah, if I'm Phoenix, I really want to force Dallas to play late in the clock. I'm going to try to just put some pressure on Luka full court, get it so at the end of the clock, maybe you can double and there isn't time for them to swing it around and hurt you. You can switch and not let them get into a conventional pick and roll. I don't think they want to be in a situation where they're putting two on the ball on Luka. Like he's just too good of a passer there and they don't have another big guy behind to take that away. Another reason I like Dallas a little bit better offensively is just because like they're always they're going to go five out so much like even more so than Ty Lue like Ty Lue I thought went away from the five out too quickly in last year's playoffs and that that really hurt them they just couldn't score without that well number one they have Luca and number two I think kid just his good players are five out players like he's got Kleba and you know maybe he'll go Finney Smith at center as well so I think like he's just gonna have to experiment some and see what works I'm just not really sure like this new edition of the Mavs I don't think has played Phoenix for real you know before it was like Porzingis that was just a whole different set of strategic challenges you could switch everything with him you didn't have Dinwiddie Brunson wasn't this Brunson let's talk about Phoenix's offensive end though this will be a connector between those two things and uh, I I feel like in certain ways I'm challenging Doc Rivers here I think one of the other huge things that Phoenix can do defensively is make Luka work on his defensive end when the Suns are on offense and just use use him in actions make him make him defend potentially get Doncic foul trouble all of those things would make a huge difference yeah and you can go back maybe to how they targeted Jackson Hayes in the previous series where it'll be Chris Paul get the switch and then after that we're going to run the pick and roll with Luca on Chris Paul I think that's something they'll go to a lot and then so at that point, are they going to switch? Like, I, I think Moxie Kleba, I think he can guard Chris Paul okay. I think he can guard Devin Booker okay, as well as you could hope. The problem is just, and I think we'll also probably see, you know, Finney Smith. Is he big enough to deal with Aiton? Maybe not. It, but they'll probably go Finney Smith on Paul, at least when it matters. Kleba on Aiton, try to switch that pick and roll. You know, to me, Kleba is a better switch defender than Larry Nance uh, on CP. Bullock, to me, should be the guy on Booker. Maybe they'll put Booker on on Paul. I guess it's a question of just do you want more size to switch that pick and roll on Aiton, or do you just want more size on Devin Booker as well? Uh, but I, I think I like Finney Smith's length as, as well. If you can force Booker to kind of do more isolation stuff, also they've got pretty good personnel to switch all this Spain pick and roll stuff that they run. But to me, like where this series is going to be decided is what happens when the Mavs switch. And is that going to be DeAndre Ayton at the charge circle, DeAndre Ayton hitting a bunch of mid-rangers, JaVale at the charge circle, offensive rebounds for Phoenix? And it is, it's pretty interesting because remember, last year we saw the Clippers beat the Jazz with five out with Rudy Gobert, who couldn't hurt you there, and then play against Ayton and... 
Aiton is even better this year at this than he was last year. He was pretty damn good last year of actually being that center, particularly with the great passing of Chris Paul, who can beat you that way on Jason, the switch, quick duck-ins, offensive rebounds, etc. Jason Kidd some, said something to that effect, and people are like, ooh, it's like shade on, on Rudy Gobert. But DeAndre Aiton is so much better at attacking in those short situations. And even if you want to do the basic like post-ups and stuff, he, he's more capable at attacking that JaVale is as well. And I'm more interested in some ways if Dallas goes that approach for can if they have to and I think most of the time they won't can Chris Paul get generate real advantages on like Moxie Kleba on Dwight Powell and I'm I'm interested in how that's going to work out yeah what else sticks out to you as some of the the big things here overall in the season Phoenix like they're they're they were strong defensively at forcing turnovers and they're you know as you would expect their opponent effective field goal percentage is one of the best in the league Dallas, not great on the offensive glass overall. They also didn't do much of that playing so many out guys in the Jazz series. And they also don't get fouled a ton. So can can Dallas, even if it's in like two of the games of the series, can they get to the free throw line a bunch? Can they create some advantages, get some sons in foul trouble yeah that doesn't seem that likely to me that they're going to get that many guys i don't think so either like it's because it's kind of like the idea of well what are the what are the things you could do to cultivate even if it's in a one game thing like create an advantage that that is material for just this for just that period of time and like the suns don't get to the line of ton either so one thing i i would be doing if i'm dallas is especially if we're switching whoever's guarding jay crowder you just kind of slough off into the paint mm-hmm. and help to prevent a, a pass to deandre and maybe we'll front him in the paint like i'm i want jay crowder shooting 10 threes a game and you know all right, if he makes them we'll adjust but he has really struggled largely i think this year and particularly in the new orleans series Devin Booker in isolation like what is that going to look like are they going to do much of that is he going to be that same transition force you know he should be feeling better now this didn't start until Monday so he got a little bit more time but only two days off since Friday is he going to be 100% will he be at some point in the series or is he going to kind of be more a decoy not really making explosive movements he's going to be able to beat guys particularly if Dallas is doing a lot of switching like is he going to be able to beat that that would be a really interesting question. That, that would be something that I would be trying to do. If I'm Phoenix, I probably want to have Aiton, particularly if they're switching, I want to have Aiton matched in all of CP's minutes. Yes. And then maybe with Booker, particularly if he's feeling good, that might be when we go a little bit more five out. We'll go small, fine. If you want to switch, we'll switch too. And we'll let Devin Booker cook a, a little bit. Surely Dallas will go after campaign when he's out there with Luca. And Luca, I think he's going to need to get into the post more in this series than he did in the Utah series. Let's see, what else do we have to talk about from this one? I mean, one of the big things though is that Dallas pretty good job of taking away the rim really good job of taking away the three-point line well the suns don't really take that many threes they operate from an area in the mid-range that dallas isn't necessarily as equipped to take away they've really focused on taking away the three-point line this year and then the rim secondary to that and so what is their plan going to be i guess it's going to be switching probably i mean i think they'll they'll probably do some switch doubling as well they did a little bit of that on mitchell probably try to do that off of crowder i could very much see because I, I don't think crowder can guard luca either so they might just say hey we'll just put cam johnson in he's probably not gonna be able to stop luca either but we'll at least get more shooting on the floor like I, I could foresee cam closing some games in this one particularly if crowder can't hit shots but it's just going to be such a different series for dallas than the last series and such a different series i think for phoenix as well like the 
New Orleans didn't have any spacing. They're trying to bludgeon inside. And it's the exact opposite of what Dallas is trying to do. Along those lines, since February 1st, I was trying to get a rough proxy for when Porzingis didn't play for the Mavs anymore. These are two of the three lowest rim frequency offenses in the entire NBA. Right. Phoenix, 25% of their shots. Dallas, 28% of their shots. Yeah. So the two, to me, the two biggest strategic questions as we close here and get into predictions, what happens with Bridges? What is Phoenix are, and the cat and mouse game of getting Bridges off of Luca? Luca has been defended pretty well by Bridges. So how are they going to do that? Are they going to do conventional pick and roll with a big? Are they going to do it with a small? How is Phoenix going to respond to that? Are they going to put two on the ball? Are they willing to just switch like Chris Paul onto Luca potentially? Or Devin Booker, a potentially not 100% Devin Booker? Do they do the switch double? I think we'll probably see a lot of switch double where they first switch let Luca get into his right about to start his deliberate ISO move, and then you bring the double team, and you, where you wasted six or seven seconds on the shot clock already. But Luca's obviously an unbelievable passer, so Phoenix is gonna have to fly around out of that. And then on the other end of what happens when Dallas switches, I think if you're Dallas, you just switch and all right, fine. If DeAndre Ayton is gonna kill you inside, so be it. Like let let him just like keep ducking in every time. He doesn't get to the foul line that much, so hopefully he won't foul you out. And we're gonna try and make CP go one on one a lot. We'll try to bleed some of the time off the clock. Like a lot of times they'll have somebody else bring the ball up so CP can relax a little bit. Okay, you pressure that guy up, right? If we're switching, we want you to have as little time as possible at the end. So those are the two things that I'm gonna be looking at. I think the the key players in this series to me outside of the stars are Bridges and Kleba. Kleba, if he hits shots, if he can switch on to Booker and Paul and hold his own, and of I'll, course Bridges, I'll like add, how much can he limit Dorian, I'll add Dorian Finney-Smith to that. I think he's sure. Be yeah, no, no, I think I think that's right. And of course, you know, it'll come down to making open shots and stuff too. Um, I'm gonna make you go first on the prediction this time. I, I, that is totally fine. This is Luka Doncic's opportunity to firmly announce his arrival. I don't think that's where this series goes but it's a possibility. I think the Suns can and will defend him well, but the idea of Luka potentially being the best player in the league in the next two to three years, I think this could be an indication of it. I'm sad that we were deprived of that opportunity by him being out with this calf injury in the Jazz series. That coupled with some stylistic things that I think make Dallas an interesting matchup for the Suns and Devin Booker still making his way back from this hamstring injury. Dallas has a credible chance to win this series. I think the Suns are meaningful favorites, but I I do think that Dallas can. That said, I'm going Suns in six. Luka Doncic is, to me, the best player in this series by quite a measure. He has a ton of shooting around him. If Mikhail Bridges is able to limit him and Phoenix is able to limit him, I mean, that's just incredible. Phoenix is probably better equipped to do that than many, many teams are with bridges and uh, more capable wings and guards who at least don't suck defensively and a pretty darn mobile big man. But even with the bridges thing, I think particularly too, as you get into a playoff series, that they'll be more intentional of finding ways to get bridges off of Luca and get him going. Luca has not been shut down in a playoff series yet, even by another team that had pretty tight damn good personnel uh he he also just cooks pretty much anybody in isolation except for Kawhi Leonard is really the only guy who has been able to just straight up stop him in isolation in the playoffs so far and maybe that's Bridges but then all right you go against someone else and we haven't yes the Suns have played well against the Mavs but they have a different coach and they have a different system and they have other creators as well they've got great spacing at this point on the other hand I and Dallas's defense has 
been very very impressive against a team that does a lot of pick and roll they really kind of took them out of that pretty well and but of course utah was not trying to just pull up from the elbow and shoot 60 percent from there the way booker and paul are going to so it's a different challenge but also there's a question of, hey can phoenix actually beat you just shooting mid-rangers with this great offense that they have I think this series will be close. I think the Suns will win it in seven games. I'm still a little. I think Luca is closer to being 100 percent than Booker is right now. Like Luca's played three games, he hasn't re-injured it. He looked pretty much himself. Booker, I mean, when you t- heard his timeline, he's definitely. I think is still going to be compromised at least early in the series, and he always could just kind of be continually re-injuring it and never get back to 100 percent. So ultimately, I'm going to go Suns in seven with the home court and just how good they were. I think both these are like the number one and number two clutch teams in the NBA basically since february 1st i do think there's a little bit better experience a few more options for phoenix and ayton is a key against what's gonna largely maybe be a small switching series other than that it's gonna be awesome though i think this is gonna be a fantastic series i'm, I'm so glad that dallas made it rather than utah for that reason hopefully that will buoy us against the the frustration sadness of the frustratingly changed other series its counterpart on some of these days philadelphia and miami which shifted with the news that joel Embiid suffered a fracture of his right orbital bone and a mild concussion he is not traveling to miami for games one and two he could potentially return for games three and four but there's a reevaluation and everything else it could potentially be in a mask ramona shelburne had some information that this fracture is not as severe as the last fracture which happened and Embiid was wearing a mask well he had to have surgery on that exactly. one. Exactly. So. Exactly. And that that I believe that was shortly before he played the the last time the Sixers played the Heat in a playoff series, which is a weird coincidence. And that is a huge problem because as I see it, and I don't think you'll disagree too dramatically, the games that Joel Embiid does not participate in in this series will be basically the Philadelphia 76ers drawing dead. Well, I can't quite go that far. I, I don't think, if, and for me, it's not as much about their offense. It's about that their defense just doesn't make sense against Miami. Yeah, but Miami, like, they couldn't light up the Hawks even. Yeah. And Butler has this knee thing. Lowry, like, they're not going to get, like, Miami is terrible in transition, and the Sixers have a terrible transition defense. So, the, and particularly with Lowry, Lowry's not going to play. You know, he's got this hamstring. He's obviously not as important as Embiid. But just, I, I go back to actually Doc Rivers having a very good record with undermanned groups. And that goes back to 2015 when they won one out of two without CP. In the first two games with the hamstring in Houston, that put him in position to ultimately blow that series. And his t- his Clippers teams that were undermanned, and hey, just e- even a game that we did for the NBA strategy stream where everyone sat out for Philly and they still beat Miami. Now, that actually might give Miami a little bit more, like not taking this lightly necessarily, and, and a little more familiarity with some of these players. But, I mean, being down 2-0 is obviously a major problem for Philly, but they have a really great home court advantage. I could see them winning two once and B comes back at home. And particularly if Lowry's on, like Butler is still questionable too. Now, I th- my guess is that they just kind of erred on the side of caution, knowing that they're going to take care of the Hawks. And they did. But this is, seems like the sort of thing that can just continue to pop up or bother Butler throughout the series. And we should also note that P.J. Tucker is still dealing with that calf strain. It looks like he'll probably play. And then yeah. there, are, there are various other he like Caleb Martin is listed as as questionable, but he played in their last couple. And then Struess is listed as questionable, but I think he's going to play, too. 
So I'm guessing Doc is being coy about the lineup, who he's going to start. He says we'll play all four of our centers, which I guess, you know, Charles Bassey, I'm not even sure if he's available, but Bassey, Reed, Jordan, and Millsap, I guess is what that means. You would hope that Bam Adebayo could actually beast these guys inside, but he just hasn't really done that much of that. Even with a favorable matchup, I thought, in the Hawks series. I guess what my concern is that I'm not sure that Miami just has the firepower to blow these guys off the floor. Now, the one problem is, you know, your whole scrappy play hard underdog thing kind of gets hurt by James Harden. I imagine James Harden is going to come out playing pretty well after three days off. We've seen that from him when he gets time off, he looks a lot better. And you could see they'll probably try to go to a bunch of mismatch hunting. Do they, would they even go some lineups with like Niang at the five and like really go like old school Houston five out and let Harden attack in isolation more or tobias harris in the post more that that's gonna be fascinating do we see some zone from miami that's that's a possibility miami also kind of has these different identities with their starting group and a lot of switching and then if bam goes out of the game that can change i just don't have particularly without Embiid. i just don't have a great feel strategically for like what this series is is going to look like i mean i guess it's going to be switching with bam and i don't think harden can beat bam i guess that's ultimately what it comes down to right i've been rambling for a while here but you know james harden has to have a really good series he does and Miami has a lot of players that can slow them down, even if some of them are saddled with injuries right now. And one of them has experience playing with and against Harden, that being former teammate P.J. Tucker. I, yeah, I imagine he'll get the initial Harden assignment, but obviously there'll be plenty of switching with Bam as well. And they'll be going after Tyler Hero plenty. But the, I think, you know, can Max Struess guard Harden? That'll be interesting. Are they just going to switch Max Struess onto him? Kind Tyler, of Hero, Tyler Hero will be a huge question there. Like, what what are yeah. what what's the go no go line for Eric Spolstra and these players? How much can you can how much can you pull that off? And then for for Philly in the, especially in the stretch when Joel Embiid is unavailable, however long that is, do they go back to kind of it, can Tyrese Maxey activate it in a different way? Can you can you use something there? But then also, who is his foil going to be? Who is his counterpart going to be? Because these big men that they will be having in some of the actions with Maxi aren't exactly the most threatening. No, that that's a problem. And Maxi, he's not really a pick and roll guy anyway, other than True. just going in a straight line. Transition, I mean, Philly's going to desperately need to run in this series and get transition because I don't really trust them to attack Miami's half-court offense. I do think that Miami has somewhat of the coaching advantage, but not not as pronounced as in the last round against McMillan. Who's Miami going to start? The probably will start Gabe Vincent, I'm guessing, for Lowry. But I think we will see a fair amount of Victor Oladipo. I think Oladipo, they'll probably start with Vincent on Maxi. But Vincent kind of likes to pressure up against slower players. I'm not sure that his brand is exactly the way to go against Maxi necessarily. Maxi is just going to be bombing as many threes as he can probably. I think they're just, and I'm interested to see, you know, Harden has gone against switching a lot with Golden State. Can Philly get any of these kind of quick slips to the rim? Any system buckets? My guess is probably not. And particularly because they don't have a role man who can like slip out of these screens and get on top of the basket at all either. Maybe that's Paul Reed, but that's that's obviously asking a, a, a lot of him. I think they probably should start read i think they'll switch on on defense 
I might actually consider switching on defense if I'm Philly. I think they'll do some, but I don't think they'll do as much as we want. Uh, because I don't like you. Reed can probably do that a little bit, particularly with your starting group. You start Reed. Harden, of course, wants to switch anyway. Miami, and also keep in mind, Miami when they start the game doesn't have Hero out there. They don't really have great off the dribble guys. I don't think Oladipo is someone I trust to beat a switch. He's kind of more in pick and roll. Like I do think Miami is actually vulnerable to some switching. They don't really go to Adebayo that much in those plays either. Maybe they'll have to learn to do that. Butler... Now, the problem for, you know, I should say to finish my thought, Butler, he can kind of get the ball in the post and do triple threat stuff, but I don't really trust him in just like a dribble isolation out top against someone like, you know, Harden or something. Harden's actually pretty strong. So I, I think Philly, if they switch, could potentially slow down Miami. I think this is going to need to be more of a Duncan Robinson series or a Strews coming off the screens, really bombing, hopefully. Miami just quickly moving the ball out of some of these actions and getting Philly in rotation. The problem is Philly behind the switching doesn't really have competent help defenders. Yeah, supplemental rim protection, reactions, communication will all be challenges for them. But yeah, I'm not sure. Like I, if you had to put a gun in my head, I would say Miami wins the first two without Embiid. But I don't know that they're going to just like light these guys up <laughs> on the offensive end. Like I, I could see both teams kind of struggling to score a little bit and it just being a weird series with some switching and Miami kind of struggling to deal with that at first. In some ways having him beat out there and everyone being in a drop coverage makes it easier for miami then obviously Embiid is as more talented than the guys that they have and he provides rim protection and rebounding and all that i think in the very early going we'll have to see how long the injuries for kyle Lowry. i think i think there is a little bit of underselling how important that injury is in and Embiid is is a better player than kyle Lowry, but lowry changes the way the heat play so much as well in terms of like so miami when you look at the disparity in their transition offense with and without kyle lowry it's remarkably stark and miami like i mean there are a bunch of different ways to describe this but one of them for me is that miami had the seventh worst clutch offensive rating in the entire nba this regular season and that was a 101.1 only one team with a lower clutch offensive rating is still live in the playoffs and that's the boston celtics Everybody else is long since passed. Um, actually, not the war and the Warriors are close there. But uh, and so for Miami, like the idea of well, what are they going to turn to when things get tough? I my counter to my own point there is can Phil what can Philly take away? Is this is this a more challenging like matchup than average? And I'm not sure on that front. The possession game, I think, is going to really matter a lot. Miami quietly is a pretty good offensive rebounding team. They don't turn it over very much. Philly, maybe they'll force a few more turnovers if they have Reed out there, but they're just not athletic enough to really do much there. I expect Miami to win the possession game relatively handily. Harden certainly can get a little turnover happy at times. There'll be other guys trying to make plays who just aren't really used to it as much. So I think that'll be a concern. Danny Green, can he keep it going? This great performance that he had in the Raptor series, he's going to need to play real well again. I imagine he'll be the guy starting on Butler. No, nah, it'll probably be Harris, actually. I'm guessing he'll start on Butler. But if they're going to switch... Oh, boy, it, will that be fun from there. an emotional standpoint. <laughs> yeah, they chose Harris over over Butler in some ways. Especially in the mind of Jimmy Butler, that's true. So what about when Embiid comes back? We haven't really talked about that much. I think we'll see a lot of zone at that point from Miami. That zone where they even bring bring the guy from the weak side corner all the way to the free throw line to prevent Embiid from getting the ball there. I don't think they'll start that way. Will Miami feel comfortable switching with Embiid out there? Maybe they would. Then they front the post. Then they double team. They try and pressure the ball, etc. 
Could we see? I I don't expect it, but could we see some of your beloved box and one against a big? <laughs> yeah, I think it's a reasonable option. Yeah, I'd be interested to see if Spo has something like. I could very easily see this series Miami eking out a couple of closer than expected wins at home in games one and two. Philly. Now, the other problem with Embiid, too, though, is he still has the something. He's going to basically have not, if he's concussed, he's not going to be able to be just in shape immediately coming back. He's not going to be able to play as hard as he was playing at times in the Toronto series. Harden, I think, is going to wear down throughout this series. I think there is a possibility he could have a really good game to start and Philly hits a bunch of threes. Like They'll still be a good shooting team early on, and they might even get a little bit of transition. Then the return of Lowry is going to be crazy also. I don't really want to go much more into this, honestly, particularly because we've been recording for two hours now but i think i'm ready for predictions and obviously we'll talk much more about it as these injured players actually come back i'm concerned that well so i have to go first actually well no i think you went first first for each of the first two fair enough um so i i can do it i'm genuinely torn here between heat and six and heat and five i think philly can make this a series and i think they do have a home court advantage my inc- my instinct is that joel Embiid does not play before game four of this series and that he's not right in the early part when he plays either due to some of these unusual the unusual confluence of issues that he's dealing with make it very hard for him to stay in the right kind of physical f- the, the like to be ready to be shot out of a cannon like we'll need in this series so oh here but before you say that can i correct myself i was accidentally looking at the playoff stats for those things for miami so miami actually does turn it over a lot yes uh 14.9 percent of the time it's 28th and they're 12th in offensive rebounding so i don't know that they're gonna just like kill them on the offensive glass but but then yeah yeah but uh, but I guess uh, the fact that Philly isn't going to force any turnovers really plays into making Miami's offense be more efficient than it might ordinarily be. Also, Philly, a terrible offensive rebounding team in their own right. It's just not something they prioritize, which will be more extreme, presumably. But depending on where who they play and, and where they play. But so as I yeah. as I was going into, I'm and I respect Philly's home court advantage, but I my instinct is Joe Embiid does not play before game four, and maybe not even at that point. And it's still dealing with the thumb ligament issue. And I I agree with you, and I think my my I've had these misgivings about Miami's offense, half court first shot offense the entire season. Those have not gone away really at all. But I don't think Philly is particularly well suited to exacerbate or exploit those. So if Kyle Lowry, if he were playing in game one, I would go Heat in five, but instead I'm going to go Heat in six. Yeah, I think I'll go Heat in, in six as well. And I, thought- I, I, you know, maybe they, they may end up just completely choking the life out of this Philly offense. And it, it's obviously going to be up to Harden and Maxi to have an incredible series and their shooters to shoot it pretty well. Before we go, though, we do have to talk about just the circumstances in which Impede was injured. Up 29. About four minutes to go. He scores, gets a big dunk, does the airplane back down the floor. Then Pascal Siakam drives, does a Euro step, elbows him in the head. I think inadvertently, uh, Toronto's announcers really have not been my favorites lately. I'll tell you that. This, this is even beyond annoying, I'd say. Where, first of all, they're like melting down over Embiid doing the airplane, which like it's just celebrating after like a a win like like i don't really how is that any different than any other celebratory gesture to like pump yourself up it's like oh you're up by too much so you're not allowed to like to celebrate Uh, i don't really understand that and then they're like oh karma's a you know what when he got elbow in the face they didn't know that he was gonna be like he obviously was hurting at the time they didn't know that he was gonna be out i don't know if they've apologized for that i think they certainly do owe him an apology but of more import you're up 29 with four minutes left in the game and I'm not 
I'm not as much. Maybe it's because I didn't grow up with the, I didn't grow up with the sport the way that some did. Of a you have to let the other team sub their you know the the trailing team has to pull their guys first. I think that coaches you can you can lean that way if it's a judgment call, but once it becomes not a judgment call, just do what's right for your team. And Philly has blown leads before, and I mean we've covered plenty of teams that are too reluctant to take their guys out. But we have gained so much of an appreciation over the last couple of years for the for the reality that every second you're on the floor in a competitive basketball game is a risk of injury in in, in an inadvertent play or an advertent play and it's extremely unfortunate that it happened i wish it hadn't happened and i do think it could have been prevented so doc of course with yet another of his inaccurate excuses like oh well we just got up 29 we just put the game out of reach they went up 26 with about eight minutes left here let me actually get it exactly because i tweeted this out and not do the same thing that doc did yeah with 831 left the sixers took a 26 point lead and never led by fewer than 24 the rest of the way so his excuse that the game had just gotten out of hand yeah 29 was the largest they had led by but they had it didn't look like it was getting much closer and people like okay if you're gonna say that when should he have taken the guys out and I wouldn't have like taken them out with six minutes left and just said, hey, go put ice on your knees. I would just be like, okay, you know, Joel, particularly because they were playing him in two stints. And, and particularly Joel is already playing with this thumb thing. Maybe you take him out, you leave the other guys in. He would be the number one guy, obviously, that you want to preserve. Or maybe even take him and Harden out and let Ma- uh, Maxi and Harris still stay out there and just say hey we're resting you we're gonna rest you guys for two minutes here with six minutes left of 24 and as long as they don't go on like a 10-0 run in that next two minutes then you can just sit them down for good if they're still up 20 with four minutes to go so that would have been my approach for those who wanted to know and that yeah up 24 up 26 with six minutes left i think that would be it now again the custom is you don't take your guys out until they take their guys out yes the sixers have a terrible history of collapses you still you got to get your guys out early and the same thing i said with donovan mitchell it turned out thankfully that he was okay same thing like the luca one was a little bit different because they would have had to act on some it, other was, it was so very the luca one was so much more co- outside context dependent right than, than but this like you just have two examples of this shit happening right like, this is the third time this shit's happened in like three weeks and it sucks like it, mark stein has now seven all-stars of missed time in these in these playoffs and i still think we're gonna have a really good second round but it could have been a lot better uh little other news to get to here very quickly zion williamson he said he couldn't sign it fast enough when asked if he would sign an extension with the Pels this summer in his post-season media session. And he said that he, I could have felt that I could have played, but I agreed with the organization that we wouldn't play. Remember his dad gave that interview saying he was ready and he was doing all those dunks and stuff. But David Griffin then said, hey, we're going to wait. He's still under some restrictions. And so, you know, a few weeks from now, he's going to get another scan and then he'll, if that's okay, then he can go into the offseason with no restrictions at all. Now, I would assume that Zion Williamson was referring to a designated player max extension, not any extension. I agree. Yes. Yeah. No, a four year, the Dan Feldman four year extension for the minimum from the or, <laughs> rookie or extensions the, podcast. Or the final two years being non guaranteed with a prior injury exclusion. Well, I think Embiid is going to end up being a pretty decent analog here. Now, let's keep in mind that Embiid. When he got his extension, he'd missed two years. 
and then he played one and then had the meniscus surgery and he only played like 700 minutes but he looked fucking amazing and even that was very player friendly as we talked about it, it was i can't remember the exact details but it basically was like two years before the year in question if he wasn't released by then it would guarantee and there was i think there were only exclusions for even based on that for certain areas of the body like his left foot which he'd had the two consecutive missed years on so something along those lines would seem to be about fair i would i would say that zion's first two seasons are maybe a little bit more troubling than Embiid's well didn't the navicular bone and that kind of stuff really serious I mean we weren't even well, sure how well much yeah was- but I think it was like there was an explanation there right because he had played or he had had the fracture and it was just a bad surgery and then he had the uh, surgery again and then he was fine right now he also had the knee thing and stuff too um I mean I would say they kind of looked about equally dominant when they were out there but Zion has had these troubles with conditioning as well on the other hand this is a small market I, I mean I think it's going to end up somewhere with Embiid and frankly you know what Danny I would just fucking give it to him okay maybe you get the same like non-guarantees on the last two years with Embiid with similar trigger but like if he's injured the next five years you're not going anywhere as a franchise anyway so who cares you might as well just keep him happy and, and you know and if he's the other yeah. important part of this is it's not why you're signing the extension but as a practical consideration what other teams would be interested in Zion's so damn talented it would take a lot you know this is goes back to the I, well, I've argued this in certain cases including Anthony Davis going back when he was in New Orleans of players being more too risk averse when it comes to the qualifying offer and everything else is teams would be interested in Zion Williamson even if these years don't go great on this contract so if it becomes a circumstance where it, you you don't want him around or something else there will be teams interested yeah now would i like to let's see if he makes it to training camp healthy and he's in camp and looking good yeah that might be nice now you run the risk of pissing him off there i suppose i suppose but you know maybe that's that's worth the trade-off there and you can even tell him that maybe you don't want to tell him that because it's like okay then he's just gonna put himself on ice to not get injured for the whole offseason but i mean that's the other thing too danny like if michael porter jr got the contract that he got like he's just gonna get it and if he really misses so much time you can get a long-term injury exclusion or something like that i think he's gonna be out there and be effective if he's on the floor at least to some degree it's you don't have much other choice but really this idea that and they're kind of like in the tax and stuff too and they're gonna have to deal with that but this idea that oh yeah we're gonna hold off it's just like where are you going if he's not healthy anyway right like, oh we're gonna win a championship with the uh, 33 year old cj mccollum and brandon ingram and jose alvarado you might be a nice story you might make a few playoffs here and there potentially but you'll be first round cannon fodder almost certainly without him so it's just you know t- I-, I think the bigger risk is not giving it to him than giving it to him personally like i actually don't think giving it to him in the end is that big of a risk because if he doesn't work out then you're just in rebuilding mode anyway and who cares whether you have 30 million in dead money on your books or not there's an opportunity cost there some but it's not like oh man like we would be competing for a championship if it just wasn't for this dead 30 million dollar salary slot there's a fundamental difference for me with players who have even if it was over a short period of time the level of play that zion had the second half of last season the rules are completely different i've talked about how i've been i didn't like the kings with demarcus cousins or the even the well the player option in donovan mitchell's case is a little bit different but like some of those circumstances like the no hesitation maxes for guys that aren't one of the best players at their position then don't necessarily profile that way zion it's a different concern but the concern is not the level of the quality of play when he's healthy so for me i would have less hesitation but i would try to put those kinds of m 
Embiid-esque restrictions on there, even if they are more about like kind of style than substance, just as a little bit of protection there. All right. Uh, I'm pretty tired. Mm-hmm. I'm going to go to bed and we'll come back tomorrow. We have a couple more game ones in the books. Talk to y'all then. At Bet365, we don't do ordinary. We believe that every sport should be epic. Every goal, every game, every point, every play. From the moments that are legendary to the ones that fly under the radar. Whether it's a game-winning goal in the final seconds of overtime or a shot on the goal in the first period. Whatever the sport, whatever the moment. It's never ordinary at Bet365. 21 plus only. Must be present in Virginia. If you or someone you know has a gambling problem and wants help, call 1-800-GAMBLER. Terms and conditions apply.